This is a recording of Vindicating Josiah by William H. Hamlin, originally published in Interpreter, a Journal of Mormon Scripture, Volume 4, 2013, pages 165 to 176, read by James Jensen. This audio recording is copyrighted under a Creative Commons license and may be freely distributed if it remains unchanged. The journal and its website are credited and is for non-commercial use. A printed version of this and many other articles and resources on Mormon scripture can be found at mormoninterpreter.com. Abstract Margaret Barker has written a number of fascinating books on ancient Israelite and Christian temple theology. One of her main arguments is that the temple reforms of Josiah corrupted the pristine original Israelite temple theology. Josiah's reforms were, therefore, in some sense, an apostasy. According to Barker, early Christianity is based on the pristine, original, pre-Josiah form of temple theology. This paper argues that Josiah's reforms were a necessary correction to contemporary corruption of the Israelite temple rituals and theologies, and that the type of temple apostasy Barker describes is more likely associated with the Hasmoneans. The discovery of the Book of the Law, generally thought to be Deuteronomy, in the Jerusalem temple during the reign of Josiah, and Josiah's subsequent reforms of Israelite religion and cult to bring them into conformity with the precepts of that book, have long been recognized as decisive moments in biblical history. The origins of the Book of the Law and its meaning and implications have been debated by scholars for centuries, but no one denies the dominant sect of Israelite religion at the time of Jesus was strongly Deuteronomistic. Deuteronomy's influence on subsequent Judaism and Christianity cannot be underestimated. In modern biblical studies, the term Deuteronomist refers to a group of authors, redactors, and or editors of part of the Bible. The Deuteronomistic books of the Bible are generally said to be Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, First and Second Samuel, and First and Second Kings. When read in sequence and isolation, these books provide a complete history of Israel from Moses and the Sinai Covenant to the Babylonian captivity, presented with a shared theological perspective. These books as a collection are generally called the Deuteronomistic History. One of the key beliefs of the Deuteronomists is that there should be only one temple at Jerusalem. Since its construction by Solomon, sacrifice and worship were not permitted elsewhere. Likewise, only Yahweh, Jehovah, can be worshipped by Israelites, though Yahweh allows the other nations to worship their own gods. Deuteronomy 4.19 Thus, the Jerusalem temple alone, and Yahweh alone, are the two founding principles of the Deuteronomists. Deuteronomy 12 However, biblical texts, artistic evidence, and archaeological evidence agree that throughout much of Israelite history, many if not most Israelites followed neither of these two central Deuteronomistic mandates. Some scholars believe the Deuteronomistic ideology was in fact an innovation of the late 7th century BC rather than representing an earlier ongoing sectarian movement within Israel whose ideas eventually crystallized into the Deuteronomistic books. The centrality of the Temple of Jerusalem and Deuteronomistic theology means that the Deuteronomistic history has much to say on the subject. According to the Deuteronomists, the corruption of the Jerusalem temple cult and the worship of other gods, which are essentially one and the same problem, 
were the primary reasons for God's anger with Israel. Hezekiah and Josiah were the two greatest kings of Judah because they attempted to reform and purify the temple. Whereas the northern kingdom of Israel was destroyed by the Assyrians in 721 BC because of their apostasy, Hezekiah's reforms saved Jerusalem and its temple from a similar fate at the hands of the Assyrians in 701 BC. The subsequent apostasy of Hezekiah's son Manasseh required a second temple reform movement initiated by Josiah. The ultimate failure of Josiah's reform effort culminated in God's unleashing the king of Babylon to punish the Israelites, destroying both Jerusalem and its temple. For the Deuteronomists, the failure of Judah to worship only Yahweh and to worship him only in the temple of Jerusalem were the direct causes of the destruction of the kingdom of Judah, the city of Jerusalem, and the temple of Yahweh by the Babylonians in 586 B.C. Enter Margaret Barker, the prolific biblical scholar who has spent her career attempting to elucidate the importance of the temple for ancient biblical religion and early Christianity. The following are her major arguments regarding the Deuteronomistic writers in the temple. 1. The original pre-exilic temple cult and theology of Israel focused on visions, angelic manifestations, heavenly ascent, prophecy, revelation of divine wisdom, esoteric teachings and rituals, and theophany. It also included the veneration of a divine feminine figure associated with the biblical lady wisdom. 2. In the late 7th century, priests and courtiers of King Josiah, under the influence of the Deuteronomists, systematically downplayed, obscured, and suppressed many of these elements in the, of the original ancient Israelite temple cult. 3. These ancient temple beliefs and practices, however, survived among other minority Israelite religious groups and movements. This earlier temple theology is reflected in the non-canonical Israelite books such as those found in the Pseudepigrapha and the Dead Sea Scrolls. 4. At least some of the ideas of Jesus and the earliest New Testament Christians were related to these temple-oriented movements. 5. Earliest Christianity included all these suppressed or hidden temple beliefs, rituals, and practices, such as Jesus as the Cosmic King and High Priest, and Jesus's or one's or a visionary ascent to heaven for a theophany of God in his celestial temple. For Margaret Barker, then, the reforms of Josiah were, in fact, a type of apostasy, which placed the Deuteronomists in positions of power in the state and temple, allowing them to suppress the authentic pre-exilic temple theology, mysteries, and ritual, which were eventually restored by Christianity which may imply that much of the Old Testament as we have it was written and edited by apostates. Although I accept much of her broader thesis, I disagree with Barker on several key issues which I do not think are fundamental to the validity of her broader perspective. First, I do not believe there was ever a single pre-exilic temple theology. One of the fundamental principles of interpreting ancient Israelite religion and early Judaism is that when you have two rabbis, you will always have three or more opinions. This is, of course, simply part of human nature. Sectarian tendencies in Israelite religion were undoubtedly just as strong in pre-exilic times, before 586 B.C., as they were in early Judaism of the Second Temple period, 500 B.C. to A.D. 70, rabbinic Judaism after A.D. 70, and early Christianity. 
Thus, in my opinion, in pre-exilic times, there were already many different interpretations of temple theology and mysticism in ancient Israel. I believe Barker occasionally attempts to conflate this broad range of Israelite temple ideologies reductionistically into a single unified theology. Second, whereas Barker tends to depict Israelite temple theology as relatively static, I believe it changed significantly through time. Thus, when Barker speaks of 3rd century B.C. Enochian temple theology as reflecting pre-exilic ideas, I believe it is likely she is at least partially conflating ideas from different early Jewish movements, times, places, and sects. The result is that she sometimes fails to contextualize her sources properly and historically and fully consider the importance of historical change through time. This means she often retrojects temple ideas from later centuries onto pre-exilic temple theology. In my opinion, it is very unlikely that the survival of the temple of ideologies of the 7th century B.C. remained unchanged and static through the 1st century A.D. I believe it is very important to contextualize temple texts that Barker studies in their proper time and sect, though this can, of course, sometimes be somewhat obscure. Third, whereas Barker claims that Josiah's reforms represented an apostasy from the pre-Deuteronomistic temple theology, I believe the situation is much more complex. We need to realize that the Deuteronomists represent Josiah's reforms as a restoration of the original pristine Mosaic temple theology. What we really have are two or more competing visions of what authentic ancient Israelite temple theology originally was and hence ought to be. Barker takes the Deuteronomist position and turns it on its head. For Barker, the Deuteronomist reforms were an apostate innovation which attempted to suppress the original, authentic, pre-exilic temple worship. I believe instead that sectarian complexity in temple theology, ritual, and mysticism was already the norm in pre-exilic Israel. Finally, I believe that Josiah's reforms were necessary and inspired. The first thing to note is that no biblical prophet ever opposed or criticized Josiah's reforms. No biblical prophet ever endorsed the worship of the goddess Asherah. No biblical prophet ever endorsed the worship of any god other than Yahweh. No biblical prophet ever endorsed the worship of idols. Now one could in theory argue this is because the Deuteronomists decided which books to include in the Bible and consciously suppressed alternative viewpoints from non-Deuteronomistic prophets. But the fact remains that in the surviving texts, all the prophets agree with at least these three basics of Josiah's reforms. 1. Israel should worship only Yahweh. Israel must not worship foreign gods. 2. Israel must not worship idols, or worship Yahweh as an idol, or follow other Canaanite cultic practices, and, to the extent they discuss it, 3. Israel must worship only in the Jerusalem temple. Even Ezekiel, whom Barker sees as one of the most important prophets of authentic temple theology and mysticism, agrees with these principles, and insists that failure to follow these principles was the cause for the departure of the glory of Yahweh from the temple, leaving it ripe for destruction by the Babylonians. Why did Josiah believe these reforms were necessary? The fundamental problem was syncretism. The ancient Israelites were given numerous laws whose primary purpose was to distinguish them from non-Israelites. Circumcision, the types of clothing one could not wear, permitted hairstyles, forbidden foods, 
marriage only to Israelites, and various cultic restrictions were all designed, at least in part, to prevent Israelites from losing their distinct religious and ethnic identity. The reason the Jews survived the Babylonian captivity with their religion and identity relatively intact was precisely because of their refusal to syncretize with the culture and religion of their captors. The reason the Jews are one of the very few ancient Near Eastern peoples whose religion survives to the present is the restrictions on their syncretizing with foreign cultures and religions. Without Josiah's reforms, the Jews would probably not have survived the Babylonian captivity or Hellenistic and Roman occupations. They would have ended like the ten tribes of Israel, losing their identity in the captivity. There would have been no Judaism in the first century A.D., and hence no Jesus and no Christianity. Josiah's strict anti-syncretizing reforms of Israelite religious belief, practice, and cult ensured the survival of the Jews. Centralization of Jewish worship in the Jerusalem temple was necessary because the provincial cultic sites were the major centers of cultic syncretism. This does not, however, necessarily mean that nothing was lost. The exoteric public temple cult of Israel is repeatedly criticized by the prophets for its sterile ritualism. There were clearly sectarian movements within Israel which rejected part or even all of the temple esoterica and secret teachings, as Barker describes throughout her books. It is important to remember that Barker attempts to envision the lost temple theology of pre-exilic Israel precisely because it was never actually completely lost. It survived among esoteric groups of temple priests such as Ezekiel and Joshua the high priest, as well as among sectarian Jewish movements, most notably at Qumran as reflected in the Dead Sea Scrolls, and in esoteric temple texts found in part in the Pseudepigrapha. I believe a more fundamental apostasy of Jerusalem temple theology, ritual, and mysteries occurred in the mid-2nd century B.C., when the Hasmoneans usurped both the Vedic kingship and the Zadokite high priesthood, while consciously suppressing prophecy. This usurpation resulted in a schism when Onias IV, considered by many to be the true successor to the Zadokite high priest, fled for his life to Egypt, where he built an alternate temple at Leontopolis, which functioned from around 160 B.C. to A.D. 73. The Qumran community likewise fled into the wilderness and went underground at about that time, creating their own esoteric interpretation of the temple mysteries. Thus, by the late 2nd century BC, there was at least three separate rival temple theologies, Leontopolis, largely unrecoverable, Jerusalem, and Qumran, each rejecting the others and claiming ex exclusive authority. There were undoubtedly many other movements as well. The Hasmoneans were not averse to killing those who rejected their priestly authority. Alexander Janaeus, 103-76 B.C., slew thousands of Jews who threw their citrons at him during the Feast of Sukkot, as Alexander tried to act as high priest, reflecting the fact that most of the people rejected Hasmonean claim to the high priesthood. Janaeus' crucifixion of 800 opponents of his rule also reflects the nature of Hasmonean tyranny and their compulsion to punish those who question their royal or priestly authority. After the fall of the Hasmoneans, selection of the high priest eventually fell into the hands of Roman overlords, leading to the corruption of the office and the temple, as frequently decried in the New Testament. The Hasmonean suppression of prophecy is described in 1 Maccabees 14.41 
when the people and priests declared that, quote, Simon should be king and high priest in perpetuity until a true prophet should arise, end quote. This has been the end hope for a future, quote, true, end quote, prophet, reflected an assumption that there were no contemporary authentic prophetic voices. In fact, the writers of the Dead Sea Scrolls claimed prophetic authority and strongly rejected Simon's priestly claims. But as opponents of the Hasmoneans, they were not considered, quote, true, end quote, prophets. And because no prophet spoke in support of the Hasmonean usurpation, the official Hasmonean view was that there were no, quote, true, end quote, prophets. Thus, while I agree with Barker that there was a corruption and apostasy of ancient Israelite temple theology, mysticism, and cult in ancient Israel, I believe it occurred in the 2nd century B.C., not the 7th. Much of Barker's theories about the temple and early Christianity are still valid if the temple apostasy occurred in the 2nd century rather than the 7th. I believe Josiah's reform of the temple cult was both necessary and inspired and was not in itself the cause of a temple apostasy described by Barker. This has been a recording of Vindicating Josiah by William H. Hamlin, originally published in Interpreter, a Journal of Mormon Scripture, Volume 4, 2013, pages 165 to 176, read by James Jensen.